we're in a uh, series called Best Story Ever. Uh, this is a, a series where we're looking at the entire Bible. And uh, if you've been with us, then you'll know that what we've been doing is we've been looking at 15 stories from the Old Testament, 15 stories from the New Testament to give you the Bible at 30,000 feet. And just uh, by way of kind of looking back, uh, anyone remember where we've been? What, what, what has happened so far in, in God's big story? <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> uh, well, he's in there at some point, yeah. Okay, there's a garden, yeah. Uh, so yeah, creation, right? Uh, God makes a good world. God makes a good world. The world is good because God made it. Uh, but uh, then what happens? Yeah, there's a fall, yeah. So um, we looked at the story of how sin came into the world. And then, uh, anyone remember what happens after this? The call of Abraham. Yeah, so um, what is God going to do to reverse the curse to deal with the problem of sin and ultimately to save the world? Well, he gets a guy named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of your family a great nation. And one day you're going to have an, you know, someone from your family line is going to bless every ethnic family on the history of the earth, in the history of the world. In other words, every person who's ever lived is going to be blessed through some descendant of Abraham. And when the New Testament comes, we find out that person is Jesus. And then last week, um, we looked at the story in the book of Exodus about the Exodus, where about 400 years after Abraham, uh, Abraham's family at this point uh, has grown to be several hundreds, thousands of people, and they've become slaves in Egypt, which at the time was the most powerful empire on the earth at that day. And they become slaves, and God raises up a man named Moses, and Moses becomes their rescuer. He rescues them out of Egypt through uh, the various plagues that God pours out on the Egyptians, and he leads them through the Red Sea. And that's where we, we ended last week. So where are we this week? This week, um, we're going to come to a couple chapters, again in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, when Israel comes to Mount Sinai. So I've got the text here, if anyone wants to help me pass these out. That would be great. If you've uh, been with us recently, then you'll know we've been distributing a copy of the passage each time. This is for you to mark up. And then in uh, groups a little later, uh, it's a, something that you can reference as uh, you guys are getting to discuss what's in here. So... I'll let those get passed out for a sec. I'm just going to give a couple of comments uh, just to sort of set this passage up and then you guys can take it away and study it in groups in just a few minutes. Uh, just three things that I wanted to flag up just to uh, put before you uh, to consider this evening. So, number one, this is a story about God calling the Israelites, calling these descendants of Abraham into a special kind of relationship. So, relationship is kind of the first key theme. So, look at uh, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19. You yourselves, this is God talking, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
I really like the way that that is put. You know, God brought them to himself. So already you're introduced to an idea of relationship here. He brings them to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So look at the kind of relationship God wants with the Israelites. So a couple of things he says here. He wants them to be his treasured possession. You know, there's the, uh, a verse that appears in the New Testament that Jesus says, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you think about what is it that you treasure most? Like when you just are kind of bored and your mind is wandering, what does your mind wander to? Very often that thing is your treasure. And Jesus is saying, whatever that treasure is, the thing that you value the most, that is where your heart is. Well, do you know that God has his heart someplace? And what he says here is that he desires for the Israelites to be his treasure, his treasured possession. So, I mean, it's basically saying that he's inviting this ethnic family to have a special place in the heart of God. It's pretty profound. And actually, by the way, if you're a Christian, uh, we get to enjoy that very same privilege. Just go to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. And some of this very same language that's applied to the Israelites, he actually uses of us, of, of believers in Jesus today. And then uh, he says he wants them to be a kingdom of priests. Well, priests, who are priests? Priests are intermediaries. You know, a priest would be a go-between between God and man. And so, in other words, a priest is someone who helps bring other people to God. And this is actually connected to the promise to Abraham. Remember, God wanted to use Abraham's family in order to bring all the other nations into relationship with him. And so he's very affirming that here. He's saying, I want to use you guys to bring all the other nations into relationship with me. And then last of all, uh, he says he wants them to be a holy nation. Well, you know, how is he going to accomplish the goal of having Israel draw all the other nations to God? Uh, one way is through making them holy. Uh, so what does holy mean? Any thoughts? What is holiness? What was that? Set apart. Yes, yeah. Uh, literally, holy, you know, to be holy means to be set apart. Or uh, another way you could define holiness. Holiness is distinction. If someone is holy, they are distinct from the things around them. And therefore, that's why God says that he is holy. Because there is no one like God. God is utterly unique and utterly distinct in who he is. Um, you can't define God with reference to other things because God is only defined by himself. That's why a little later, or a little earlier actually, he says uh, his name is I am that I am. I kind of like to think of this as can't touch this theology, like that famous song, you know. Like, in other words, like you can't really kind of touch or get at what God is like with reference to um, other things except for God. And ultimately, Jesus, who reveals what God is really like. So God wants the Israelites to be like him and to be distinct. So, so just I'm pointing these things out to you just to notice as you're looking at this passage tonight, the kind of relationship he wants to bring them into, number one. And then number two. So if that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with the Israelites, uh, you know, wow, what a high calling. <laughs> you know, what a noble calling. But then how is he going to do this? Because, you know, just not but a couple chapters ago, the Israelites were a bunch of ragtag slaves. 
You know, that, that doesn't really sound like the kind of nation that would be this, this holy nation that would be so distinct and so attractive that all the other nations would want to flock to them and to their God. So how is God going to make them all these things that he, he sets out? Well, one of the, the means that he uses um, is through introducing something called the law. So, for example, if you go to the second page on your handout, if you look at uh, the beginning of chapter 20, you might recognize a very familiar passage of the Bible to some of us, which is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are the beginning and also kind of the, the summary, or maybe you could say kind of the most um, representative, maybe most important part of the law. And there's a lot of places in the Bible that you could consider law, book of Leviticus, some places in Exodus and Numbers. Um, and so uh, just, okay, here, here's an analogy. Here's an analogy that I think kind of gets at, um, you know, why all of a sudden does God introduce a law? Well, um, you know, whenever you're, um, let's say you're in a relationship, if you're dating someone, uh, you know, I'm sure none of us have ever, as young adults, uh, been familiar with that experience. But, you know, let's just say, let's just say that there's a unique person in the audience tonight. Let's say that maybe you've, uh, you've had some experience with dating. You know, what, what, what? goes into a dating relationship. Uh, you know, one of the things I would suggest is you, you've got to get to know who the other person really is. Uh, commit, yeah, sure, commitment, lots of other things. But, uh, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're dating a person and then, you know, six months later you kind of walk away and you say, you know, I'm not even sure kind of like what they're into or, you know, what their favorite movie is or, you know, kind of what their family is like. Like, <laughs> be a pretty superficial relationship. So relationships are always based on knowledge. You have to actually know who the other person is. And so um, God wants the Israelites to know who he really is. Um, and one of the problems that the Israelites had, and one of the problems that all human beings have, is that we're always trying to invent a God out of our own heads. And, and we're trying to define God on the basis of what we think God is like, uh, rather than allowing God to define what God, who God is really like. Uh, or here's another example. Um, I want you to, um, um, you don't have to close your eyes. If you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes, but I'm not going to, you know, tell you you need to close your eyes. Just imagine, eyes open or closed, imagine for a moment that you tonight are a poor, hapless um, orphan, and that you are, you know, say, you know, like you've, you've never known, um, you know, your, your true family, and, and you're, you're lost and helpless and without a family of your own. Well, let's say, um, I need a volunteer. Any volunteers tonight? Okay, Stephen. Uh, let's say that Stephen is a very, um, let's say, um, wealthy and famous individual. <laughs> you know, I, I, surely you already know this about Stephen, that he is a very wealthy and famous individual. But uh, let's say that Stephen is a very wealthy and famous individual, and he decides, you know what, uh, just because of the, the magnanimity of my heart, the, 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 the compassion I have on other human beings, I would like to adopt you, uh, poor hapless orphan, to join, you know, to come into my family. So Stephen is going to adopt you into his family. Well, what's going to happen if Stephen adopts you into his family? Well, you're going to then take on the identity of Stephen and Stephen's family. Like, you might uh, take on his last name. Uh, Stephen, what's your last name? Chavez. Okay, so, so, you know, try that on for size. Imagine your last name now is Chavez. Um, there you go. Has a nice ring to it. 
But, you know, on top of that, you're, you're also, you're going to be living in Stephen's home. You're going to have to learn about, you know, what is it like to live in Stephen's home? You know, when do you, uh, does, does, you know, would he prefer that you kind of have your shoes on in the house or off in the house? You know, when, when does his family have dinner time? Um, you know, who does the chores and what chores are you supposed to do if you're living in Stephen's house? And so the law, in a way, um, is kind of similar in the sense that God has adopted Israel to be his own. And the law is, is one of the ways that God is trying to show the Israelites who he really is. He's revealing his character through the law. And let me just flag up for you two different things that the law shows about God's character. Actually, number one is the fact that God is a God of grace. Uh, so on your handout, look at chapter 19, verse 4. This is the one we already read, but let me just read it one more time. Uh, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So kind of hold that verse in your mind. Now jump to chapter 20, verse 2. Now, by the way, this, is, this verse is like right before the Ten Commandments. So like the first thing that Israel hears before they hear these Ten Commandments is these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, what are both of those verses speaking to? They are speaking to God's salvation. You know, they're referring to how God rescued them. And so before even a word of the law has been spoken, God is stressing that first and foremost, he's their rescuer. He's a God of grace. Grace first Commandment second, God saves us by his grace, um, and then he sanctifies us by his grace. He even glorifies us by his grace. It's all by grace. And, and this is really important because, because if you think about every other religion, just imagine um, other world religions, maybe you could say uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, every other religion and every other worldview except Christianity says that in order to be accepted by God, or in order to find salvation, you have to do something first, and then God accepts you. So, for example, like if you are a Muslim, in the religion of Islam, uh, there are the five pillars, kind of the, you know, not ten commandments, five commandments, so to speak. You know, five major things that you are required to do to be a faithful Muslim. And the way that Muslims understand salvation is that if on the day of judgment, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. So let's say that you have, you know, um, 50.0000001% good deeds and then like 49.9999999% bad deeds. Well, you've just made the cut. Like your, your good deeds just slightly outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. But then if it's the other way around, like if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then you go to hell. Um, and they don't even... Uh, claim that we can know kind of what our, our ledger is in this life. So you're, you're not even assured uh, whether you're, you have salvation or not in this life. Or, you know, another example might be uh, Hinduism. Hinduism, you know, there's the concept of karma that you, know, you get reincarnated, uh, but you get reincarnated as like a, you know, a higher creature or a lower creature like an ant or a slug or something, depending on how you have lived in previous lives. So in Hinduism, there's no such thing as unjust suffering. All suffering is actually like repayment for bad things you did in a previous life. But if you live a noble enough life, then there's the hope that you can one day escape the cycle of reincarnation. And there's sort of, you know, that's sort of like their concept of salvation. 
So you can see how in all these other world religions, you have to do something first, and then, if you do it well enough, then, you know, salvation. What you find out in the book of Exodus is that God, the God of Christianity, is completely unlike any other God, any other religion. Because God says, I've rescued you first, I've saved you first, and now I'm calling you to go live a holy life. You know, that first Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. In other words, he's completely done everything that's required for us to have a relationship with God. All the debt was paid, all the payment was made at the cross. And so, like, if you're a Christian, that means that your identity as a Christian starts not with what you do, but what Jesus has already done. And then that actually is what gives you the power to go and live a good life, a moral life. Um, So, you know, it's been said that there's only two religions in the world. There's the religion of do, which is all the other religions, and then there's the religion of done. Christianity is the only religion of done. We're uh, justified, we're saved on the basis of what Jesus has done. And just by the way, if you're here tonight and thinking, well, I'm not really a religious person at all, maybe I'm, uh, you might consider yourself maybe an atheist or an agnostic, or, you know, maybe you're just not fully sure kind of where you would categorize yourself. But you might say, well, I know that I'm not kind of one of these other religions. It is just interesting to note that even in a kind of our secular world, it works the exact same way. You know, what is, what is happening when you have a job interview? You go to your job interview, you bring your CV. And if your boss is going to hire you for, like, your dream job, you've got to, like, perform. You've got to, like, have enough good things that you've done on your resume in order to like get, quote unquote, salvation, you know, the dream job that you want. Or, you know, think about how it works with dating and romance, you know, like what, what, you're always in marketing mode because you're trying to show that, you know, you're a cool enough person that's deserving of the other person's love. So even in our secular culture, it's a religion of do rather than a religion of done. And so the first thing that the law shows about God's character is that God is a God of grace and our salvation is based on what Jesus has done and not what we do. Number one. But then number two, um, the law also reveals that God is a God of holiness. Uh, So not just a God of grace, but a God of holiness. So uh, the law reveals that we're saved by grace, but just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we can then go live however we want. Uh, So like if you flip way ahead to uh, the New Testament after Jesus comes, one of the things that the New Testament says, this is from one of Paul's letters, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase. So in other words, like if we're saved by grace, if we're already accepted by Jesus, can we just therefore, you know, go out and sin? And Paul says, no, that's, he, I'm not going to go into all the reasons, but he says, no, that wouldn't make any sense. And so God is a God of holiness, which is why when you look at this passage tonight, notice the, the majestic way that God is described. And notice that the law kind of sets out his standards and sets out what it looks like to actually um, know a God whose standards, whose purity, whose holiness is higher than ours. So the, the, the first thing is notice the kind of the nature of the relationship God wants to have with them. Uh, notice number two, just uh, kind of how the law is given. And then last of all, notice the purpose for why the law is given. Look at uh, verses seven and eight, chapter 19. Verse seven. Uh, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. Okay, now pause. Do you realize what an absolutely astounding statement this is? <laughs> what the Israelites say here. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, why is this such an astounding statement? Well, <laughs> remember back last week, you know, chapter 14, the, uh, the Israelites have just been rescued by God out of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Uh, they come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh chases after them. And he, they, they get cornered at the Red Sea. And they're, they're, they're terrified. And, you know, they've just seen God rescue them, but they then don't trust God. They disbelieve. They blaspheme God. You know, they assume that God has brought them there to kill them. And yet, you know, here they are now, a couple of chapters later, and now they're just like brimming with confidence that they can obey God's voice, that they can keep his covenant. You know, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So, you know, just let me suggest to you, I think this might be a little bit of misplaced optimism. <laughs> this might be kind of a, a particularly high view of themselves, a prideful view of themselves, which in light of all that has happened before, uh, kind of suggests that they're going to be let down and disappointed. Uh, it's been said that the entire Bible can be summarized um, in the verse, I think this is in the book of James, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is really relevant to the purpose of why the law was given. You know, why was the law given? Is the law given just that God can slap a bunch of rules on us so that then we can say, God, all that you have spoken, I will do. <laughs> God, I am so confident in my abilities to do what you want that all these rules, all these commandments that you have given me, I'm going to fulfill them and you're going to be really, really impressed with me. You're going to be really thankful that you have me on your team. <laughs> now, actually, actually that's, that is the way that many, many Christians think the law functions. That the law, or maybe the, the Bible as a whole, is basically just a rule book where it reveals the will of God for our lives. And what we have to do is we have to kind of pull up our bootstraps, we have to steal our will, and really, really, really try hard to apply it to our lives. <laughs> Very Christian phrase. We have to take the things in the Bible, all the things that God wants for us, and we, just by the sheer strength of our will, um, have to kind of get into God's good graces by, by doing it, by following the rules. But if you have lived any life at all, you probably know that that doesn't work. Why doesn't that work? Well, it doesn't work because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, a couple chapters later, in Exodus 32, no sooner have the Israelites said, all that you have said, O God, we will do, than they create a golden calf. They say, you know, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't even really remember this other God who, like, by the way, rescued us out of Egypt. And so, you know, how about, Aaron, you just take a bunch of our jewelry and make it into a golden calf, and we'll bow down and worship this cow. And they do. They bow down and they worship a cow. I mean, like, it's almost comical <laughs> that they could so quickly stray away from the very God who saved them. And this is exactly like the human heart. And the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is one story after another after another of how Israel constantly breaks the law 
of God. And so the purpose of the law, like God is not stupid. You know, he knows that even though the law does demonstrate his character, his holiness, he knows our hearts and knows that on our own, without the intervention of his spirit, there's no way that we could ever fulfill all that he asks of us. On the handout, one of the questions tonight, I think it's the very first one, actually. Let me just look at that really quick. I think the very first question, oh, no, sorry, it's the second question. Um, if you get the chance, be sure to look at this question tonight. The second question takes you to a couple verses in the New Testament. And if you look at those verses, it gives you a perspective on what the real purpose of the law is. There's some verses that show that the, the purpose of the law is, is not just to give you a bunch of rules that you can follow by sheer force of will so you can prove how great you are and how you don't really need God after all. Instead, it shows that the law's purpose was actually to reveal our sin. The law's purpose is to reveal our sin and to show us how deeply sinful we are and how much we're in need of a savior. So my favorite analogy for the law, the law's a little bit like a mirror. A mirror can tell you that your face is dirty, but you can't, it doesn't clean your face. You know, imagine how ridiculous it would be if you like, you know, have been out playing in the mud. You got mud all over your face. You see all the mud in the mirror and you just kind of like take your face and your cheek and just like rub it up against the mirror, kind of expecting that, you know, maybe if I just like rub this mirror on my face, it's going to clean my face and I'll look all nice and shiny clean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be ridiculous. The law is like a mirror. It shows us that we're sinners, but it can't actually solve the problem of sin. And throughout the rest of this story, uh, especially in the Old Testament, what you're going to see is that God uses the law again and again to convict the Israelites of how deeply they need Jesus to be their Savior. And the same thing applies to us. Uh, even if we're already Christians, even if we've already experienced God's salvation, the only way that you can live the Christian life is through the Spirit of God. You cannot obey God through your own devices. Without God's Spirit dwelling in you, empowering you, there's no way that we can please God. Romans 8. Go read Romans 8. And so the law, the purpose of the law is to reveal what our sin is, to drive us to Jesus as our Savior. One last thing just before we move to small groups, just to sort of set up what we're going to look at next week. Um, there's now a problem, isn't there? Because a couple chapters later, if you keep reading, the Israelites already have broken the law. They already sinned. They make the golden calf. And so now there's the presence of sin again in their relationship uh, between them and God. And that raises a question. You know, what is God going to do to deal with? with sin. If God is a God of grace, you know, you might think, oh, well, maybe he'll let them off the hook. But we also know that God is a God of holiness and that he can't just overlook sin and sweep it under the rug because that's not consistent with his character. So the question that that raises and the question that we're going to look at next week is the question of something called atonement. How can God be both a God who is a God of grace and a God of holiness with reference to our sin. There has to be something that will deal with our sin while allowing God to still be the God who he is. So just a little spoiler alert, that's what we'll look at next week. Uh, but for now, we're gonna move to groups. It's part of the night where we get to discuss the passage a little more. So um, yeah, I think everything is normal, like usual.
Um, so, yeah, I think you guys probably know what to do. If you're here tonight for the first time and you need a group, uh, just go with someone that you met or someone that uh, you came with or just join any group you want. And let's come back here at about 9, uh, 9.08 for one last song.